Take your Bible, if you have one, and open to Luke, Luke chapter 1. Make your way to verse 26. There's quite a bit of debate this year, as there always is when Christmas falls on a Sunday, as to whether you should do a church service or not. What do you think? Oh, I guess I know. Okay. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Oh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Oh, for a heart like Mary's. I'm glad that nothing is impossible with God, as it says in verse what, 37. One day a man ran up to Jesus and asked him, What do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus told him, just kind of boil it down, Obey God's law. The man said, Well, I've done that since I was a kid. So basically, Jesus said, okay, take everything that you own, take it over to the pawn shop and sell it, and take the money that they give you and then give it all to the poor. The man walked away sad. Jesus told his followers how hard it is for those who are rich to get into heaven. But none of his followers believed him, so he repeated it, and he said, children, how difficult it is to enter heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus could have just as easily said it is easier for Mercedes to get through a revolving door than for a rich person to get into heaven. It's easier for Bill Gates to slip into the CD drive of your laptop than for an American to get into heaven. The men who were with Jesus were simply astonished that he would say such a thing. How could it be? And so they said to him, then who can be saved? They were thinking of eternity. They were thinking of their souls. And Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Jesus was only saying the same thing that the angel Gabriel said to Mary here in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. There are a lot of impossible things for us, but nothing is impossible with God. God can do the impossible, including enter into this world, this world of ISIS, this world of death, this world of divorce, this world of lying, this world of greed, this world of deceit, 
and he can enter into it and be a Savior out of it. Beloved, he can save you. He can save your family. He can save your kids. He can reach your kids. He can do the impossible in your lives. Listen, he can even make you like his own son, Jesus Christ, and form the very character of his own son in you. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, I've learned over the years that the Bible is written in a way that no other human book is. The Bible is written in such a way that whatever kind of argument that we might form against it to try to not take it literally is already answered within the text. So whatever, like God, because he wrote it, could already, you want to put it this way, look ahead to human history and know every single argument that men are going to put up against the Bible. And so he writes it in such a way that all the arguments are answered. And I kind of want to take off on a little bit of that this morning with you because there's so many different arguments that are presented against the fact that God could enter into the, into the human race. You and I here are probably looked at, especially in this region, as weird for being here this morning to talk about and believe that God himself, in the person of the Son of the Father, entered into human history, entered into this, and then lived and went to a cross and died and rose again. Like, that's just, come on. So we're going to talk about that this morning, the fact that, that even many arguments that have been made and could be made can easily be answered, and some could easily be answered even from this text. I've learned over the years that, that this, this book answers every form of unbelief that can well up in the human heart. And normally what this book does, it's interesting, you know what, you read it and it presents a problem and then it solves the problem in a manner that you would never expect. So it's kind of a unique book in that way. For example, like there's a great problem of how is a Savior going to come into the human race? The Bible presents that problem starting all the way from the very first book. And sure enough, we have a sinless Savior who comes and gets born in Jerusalem, as we, uh, Bethlehem, because what? Well, there's a census that's decreed by Caesar Augustus, as we talked about last week, in church. So the book presents a problem, then it solves it, and men who don't want to believe it are kind of left flat-footed, and then they pass on to the next generation. In this text here, from 26 through 38, I can count a number of kinds of people, eight kinds of people, who will find this text impossible. But remember, what's impossible with men is possible with God. So I'm going to walk through those eight kind of persons with you this morning. You ready? first kind of person who finds this text impossible is, number one, the skeptic. The skeptic. Look back at verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, from God, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month has to do with Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary's cousin. She is six months into her pregnancy. And at that time, Gabriel is sent from God, who is in heaven, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, a skeptic reads this text, and he says, Ha! Angels! No such thing! Why? Because I've never seen one. It's the person who says, Look, I have to live in the real world. Thank you very much. I have to live by what I know, by what I see, by what I touch, by what I can empirically understand. I'm a person who lives by facts, not by myth, not by clever stories. I'm a fact-baked person. That's why I'm skeptical of all kinds of claims. There's all kinds of charlatans around. There's all kinds of religious 
charlatans of every kind of stripe. They want your money. So everything, therefore, that I can't verify for myself is to be dealt with by skepticism. The only way I can know if something's true is if I can apply my reason to it and it makes sense to me. So the skeptic, our friend here, is kind of in a sad situation. He has assumed that apart from knowing holiness personally, he can judge God. But it wouldn't be too much to say that the skeptic himself has an aching heart. Likely at this time of year, he squeezes through the malls, searching the stores, looking for just the right Christmas gift in order to make Christmas, listen, meaningful. The skeptic, therefore, is the kind of guy who's looking for some kind of meaning in life. In America, you know, Christmas is meant to be the most meaningful day of the year. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm always interested at the various explanations that are offered of what Christmas is. It's the day when we find out, you know, how important those we love are. Really, it takes Christmas to figure that out or some other idea I love the little Charlie Brown story that is on TV. I watched it as a little kid, and even as a little kid, it was just striking where the, who is it, little Linus or somebody comes out, and they're asking, what's it about? What's Christmas about? And he goes, well, for you this day in Bethlehem is born for you, Christ the Lord who is Savior. And it cuts through all the stuff. The skeptic hears it all, and he has no basis by which to judge one above the other, but he's always searching for meaning. Even the skepticism itself, he knows there's got to be meaning. So he plays his own game of Mission Impossible every day. And he's probably, you know, knowing that death is coming to me, or maybe he's telling himself because he can't come up with an answer, well, then death really doesn't matter. Or he convinces himself of something in his own heart that everything will be fine after he dies. But the Bible's pretty clear that eternity is set in the hearts of men, and Furthermore, that every man, because he's created the image of God, knows that he is out of relationship with the actual creator God. And so his own created soul is telling him day by day that there is a God. He rules in heaven. He made heaven and earth. And one day he knows, and this is what scares the skeptic so badly, is that he knows that one day he'll come face to face with holiness. And it's holiness that he fears the most because that's going to undo what's inside. It's going to disintegrate the fabric of what he's tried to weave inside, the, the metaphorical fig leaf by which he's been covering himself for these years. So he tells himself, verse 26, there's no angels. I've never seen one. But he says that so that he can escape God. And all of this Christmas bluffery is there so that because deep down, he doesn't want God's holiness to be true. That's our, our first person who looks to be impossible. Then the second this morning is the scientist. The scientist looks at this passage of Scripture and goes, Bah, come on, this is impossible. Look at verse 31. And behold, Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. And the scientist says, no way, that is impossible. You need a Y chromosome, Mary, in order to bear a son, the male child, 
and the woman doesn't have the Y chromosome. Y chromosomes come from males. So, the scientist says, this is impossible. Well, science is a hard taskmaster to understand and interpret life through its limited perspective. Even after you stand it up on its own two feet and you make sure that what you've looked at is verifiable, testable, and repeatable, it still can only partially interpret what we live with. And frankly, it only helps us with that which we can control. There are a lot of things we can't control, like history or like events that are outside of our actual manual power. The fact is that no matter how good science is, science never produces life. And you are living. Science, therefore, did not produce you. Only life begets life. Science cannot beget life. Science can only observe life. And life in its origin and in its procreation, if nothing is at the least a holy mystery. You understand life? Sure you do, right? No one does. Not of us. Life is too rich. Life is too broad. Life is too mysterious. How does life start in a womb? Well, we kind of know some of the mechanical processes, but come on, after that, we're like, I don't know. In fact, even the life of the scientist himself, he doesn't even know exactly how he was created, and if he's going to go out and try to verify, test, and repeat it, he can't. Science without God is actually less than life. It's actually the scientist who knows the Lord and understands why you can go ahead and verify and test and repeat and make science work, because there is an all-controlling God of wisdom and power controlling the universe. It's not a, if you believe in randomness then science makes no sense because the only way science works is that there is no randomness. You have to be able to test and repeat. So the scientist looks at this test and he goes, come on. The third person for whom this passage is impossible is the college professor. We have any college professors with us this morning? Okay, because this is kind of like the microaggression preaching session this morning. where, you know, you're, like, saying all the things that are meant to, like, tick off the PC crowd. And I'm sorry, you know, this is a passage. And by the way, the Bible is very much that way. It, 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 it's kind of like, well, you're going to start ticking off people. And you see, the message is going to get worse from here. So just, just hang on. If any of you college professors, uh, tomatoes will be supplied outside the door after the service. So the third person who would find this message impossible is the college professor. Look with me at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can I be since I am a virgin? <laughs> Come on, says the college professor. What are you, this is pure speculation. Mary, if she ever lived at all, never said that. Why, I know after studying literature at the university and having written my Ph.D. on ancient literature... Know that the Bible is only, at best, literature with various rhetorical devices. This is pure invention. Who is the author of this? Ignorant people think it's Luke because it's written at the top of the page. (laughs) Come on, that is so silly. 
if you had the education I did, and if you sat in my classroom, I would enlighten you to show you that actually the Gospel of Luke was written by a committee of people who were all providing theological interpretation according to the ideas of their day, and one of the things that they believed important was to have a woman named Mary who claimed that she was a virgin. It was all just done by a group of people with a religious agenda. We could call them the Mary School. So in other words, all of this is fable. In fact, there are other ancient religions that we know of that speak of virgin births, who were virgins who were impregnated by the gods. Of course, in those cases, this is me now stepping out of college professor role here. In those cases, all of them are done by lust. This has nothing to do with lust whatsoever. So everything in here is upright and good and holy. So anyways, the college professor looks at this, and he says, this is impossible. But I think actually, Mr. College Professor, the text speaks for itself. It really shows that if you're willing to just take it on its own words, that this is something where nobody's trying to pull any wool over your eyes, Mr. College Professor. For anyone who wants to disbelieve that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, the text itself provides the far more natural answer as to how she got pregnant. Look at the very next verse, Mr. College Professor, verse 27. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, if the author, or in this case, as they would believe, the authors, the committee, were trying to pull the wool over your eyes and say, yeah, she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, why would they even mention the guy named Joseph? I mean, come on. If you're looking for a natural explanation for how Jesus was born, what is easier to believe, that, he was, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit or Jesus was conceived by Joseph? Obviously, if you're bent on reading this as naturalistic, well, there's only one answer to that. It's Joseph. But that's the very fact. The simplicity of the text is what argues against the whole idea that the college professor has. If you were trying to teach a myth, you would never talk about Joseph. You would, in fact, hide him. You'd scrub him, erase his name, any reference to him. And the whole idea that she's engaged to this guy means that they're going to get married. Well, come on, just put two and two together, right? The simplicity of the text shows that the college professor is wrong when he says the father is Joseph. It's just wrong. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes and create a myth. No, this is simply saying, look, she was engaged to a guy named Joseph, but when she was impregnated, it was by the Holy Spirit. And the other thing I love, one of the other things I love about the Bible is that it's not written in a manner by which to try to tell Mr. College Professor all exactly how it happened so it can answer all of his questions. It just simply deals with his issues plainly and up front so that he's stripped of his self-sophistication and brought to a place where he has to accept the text based on what it says, not for how he wants to weave it. You ready for the next one? The next person who looks at this text and says, ah, come on, that's impossible. All right, we'll go from the college professor to the politician politician reads this text and he goes, oh, no, 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 absolutely not, a thousand times no. Look at verse 32. 
the promise that Gabriel makes about Jesus is that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And here's the phrase that the politician will struggle with. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, back in those days, the throne of his father David is to be the king of Israel. That's all, to be the king of Israel. That is a political position. And every single politician who has advanced to any office of significant power understands that thrones, that is the place of power, the seat of power, is not given. Notice how the text says it here in verse 32. That God will give him the throne of Father David. No, politicians know that this is wrong. Thrones are not given. Thrones are taken. Is that the way it works out in Game of Thrones? Come on. Never watched that show, actually, but... My son will tell me all about it on the way home. Thrones are not given by political intrigue, by power, and by skill. Thrones are taken, often by military force. You need to weave together certain connections, alliances, and work those together with some kind of force in order to take the throne. You know that you have to grab power if you're a politician before you can wield it effectively. Okay, politicians are an easy poke, aren't they? Every late night comedian goes after politicians like every night. They make their living. They get rich off of joking about politicians. So they're an easy target, okay? So let's turn the mirror around to ourselves and I want to make this statement that every one of us here in this room has an inner politician inside of our hearts. Every one of us wants to grab power, more power than we have. We want to have more honor bestowed upon us than we have. There's just an inner reality of all of us who are created by God and have been affected so thoroughly and deeply by Adam's fall Every one of us has this inner politician within us that wants power, authority, respect, dignity. We all have different individual ideas about how that might work for us, but boy, that is what we want. It's deep inside. So every one of us in various ways is rolling the dice and gambling for power and control and life. And this goes even broader because Jesus who really is God, and therefore has all political power, divests himself of his power in heaven, comes to earth to be born a baby without any political power. He wasn't born to the royal family. He's born to a poor girl and her soon-to-be beau. And they're going to have, like, no money. And into a humble little family. He's going to grow up humble never being anybody really. And, and here you have a, a man who has no ambition for the political. In fact, what he does is he ends up living his life such that he's losing more and more and being divested of more and more until finally he is divested of life itself on a cross. So the only way that he can ever get a throne is that it would be given to him by God. <clears throat> so, so different than you and I. What's interesting is that this text then and the implications of it tell us that there is actually a holy way to gain political power. 
It is to be as humble as Jesus Christ. It is to be as meek as him. You know what meekness is, right? Meekness is the power for someone can step on you and, and, and you can say, oh, thank you. May I scrub the bottom of your shoe while you're stepping on me? It's like the flower that gets crushed when a child runs through the flower bed and steps on it and crushes it, but when it gets crushed, it releases its most precious fragrance. Meekness often kind of linked to weakness is everything but weakness. Meekness is itself the greatest strength. To be treated as a slave, as a, as a criminal, when in fact you're not. To be wrongly accused at work and to be able to be confident that God himself knows and that he will take care of me. Meekness is the path to political power in God's kingdom. And I think that we who are believers and have been given the Holy Spirit inside of us and have Christ inside of us know that meekness is the path we must always walk. Before our unbelieving family, before my wife, how do I walk by faith as a Christian husband? I serve my wife. I love her not by demanding her to do the things. That's not walking by faith. That's just walking by sight. That's walking by the rules of the world. So all of this then is, is kind of confronting us that all of us having inside of us the kind of inner drive to be, have more power, more control, the inner politician inside of us where we demand people to do what we want at home and at work and we get so angry when they don't. Jesus says this, Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. See, Jesus' throne here is a holy throne. The throne that is being spoken of here in verse 32 is not like the thrones of this world. This is a throne that is eternal. As it says in verse 33, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, that takes holiness. If there's any kind of corruption within it, it obviously can't stand because it's going to get affected by the corruption. But this is an incorruptible throne, a holy throne, incorruptible. So we are attracted, aren't we, to this Jesus Christ, even though the politician looks at it and might scoff, scoff. And then there's another person for whom this text is impossible, the, the Muslim the Muslim would look at this text and say, no, uh-uh, no, this is absolutely impossible. Look at verse 32 again. It says, he'll be great, called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his, here it is, these are the offending words right here, his father David. Essential to all Muslim beliefs is that there was no David. To the Muslim, there were no ancient Jews whatsoever. There was no temple on the Temple Mount. It's, it's critical for Muslims to believe that. The Muslim tells himself, this right here never happened. The G Gabriel, they actually believe, the angel Gabriel did go to Mary, but he did not say this. And they do not accept this at all. So they pick and choose what they'll believe according to their prior system. It's all made up. 
Muslims do not believe that Jesus at all will ever fulfill any promises ever made to someone allegedly named David because they don't believe David ever lived. But what do you do, Mr. Muslim, with archaeology? For example, between 1993 and 1994, in northern Israel, stone fragments called a stele that actually were dug up, and they date to 1,500 years before Muhammad lived, 900 years before Christ, and it describes a political dynasty called the House of David. So when you dig that up in Israel, what do you do with that? It even mentions David's descendant, Jehoshaphat. More recently, maybe you've heard of this, the Joash tablet. The Joash tablet in the summer of 2000 at Jerusalem's Temple Mount, which is governed by the Palestinians and therefore is a Muslim territory, the Temple Mount, the press and the media ended up finding out about a situation that had tried to be hidden. There was a find made by a group called the Islamic Trust. The renovators of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of two mosques up on the Temple Mount, were digging, and they were digging under an area called the Haram el-Sharif, and they found a tablet, and it's now owned today by a private collector called the Joash Tablet. It describes repairs to the temple when Solomon, David's son, lived, and it was ordered by him. Joash was a king of Judah in the 9th century B.C. They found it, not anybody else. They found a piece of archaeological evidence that completely upended a vital part of their beliefs. So what do you do with archaeological evidence? Well, they tried to rebury it, is what they did, and they, were, they essentially gave it to a collector, and he found out about it, and so on. And it came out eventually. You know, hardline religious ideology that doesn't want facts, doesn't want truth, is so hardline because this is what I believe and therefore it's true. That creates people who lose empathy for other people. And it creates people who make false distinctions in life. Like, for example, who is holy and who is not creating false distinctions about what even such things mean so that those who aren't holy are unworthy. Well, that's the Muslim. Muslim can't look at this text and agree with it. Maybe he can choose parts of it, but not all of it. You know who else finds this text impossible? Well, I've already done enough damage this morning politically. Let me go further. The Jew. The Jew the observant Jew. For example, go back to verse 26. Well, okay, here's the angel Gabriel. He was sent from God to a city in Galilee. That's okay, so far, so far. But then you mention Nazareth. Well, no, I'm sorry. When God sends angels, they don't make local stops. They take the express all the way to Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Especially a town like Nazareth, which had all these goyim in it, who make the place kind of gentilic, and frankly... There's just no way. In fact, if you want to go, look at this. If you really want to offend, go to verse 33, saying that, that Jesus is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Man, that's about as hard as it can be. That's like saying, okay, Jesus Christ is going to be the king of the Jews forever. 
How offensive is that to most Jews? Extremely offensive. So the person would find this text absolutely impossible. In fact, if the Jew has been instructed, he actually believes that Jesus was cursed by God when he died on the cross and therefore was considered as a sheer criminal. He died, and all the people who have believed in him through all the ages have been greatly deceived by Satan. Uh, They would take this text and say it's impossible. But Christian belief is, this is absolutely true, this is exactly what Gabriel said, word for word, literally, verse to verse, and furthermore, that Jesus exactly will come back and will gain the throne of David and will rule over Israel forever with great blessing. He died on the cross in order to take our sins as a offering himself up, yielding himself as a sin offering for all who would believe, Jew and Gentile. So now all of a sudden you're faced with something that's beyond kosher laws and something that's based beyond, you know, us four and no more to a Jesus Christ who offers himself to Israel. And as we read in John 1 earlier, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And now we're confronted with someone for whom now we're really treading on sensitive territory. I mean... This is hard to tell a Jewish man or woman that Jesus Christ is going to be the king of the Jews forever. That can be very difficult, but you'd be faithful to do so. I hope you say it gently. (laughs) But it's true, and they need to know it. And I'll tell you, God is so merciful. He draws so many, many Jewish people. Do we have any Jewish believers here this morning? Anybody who grew up in a Jewish home? What a Gentile church we are this morning, huh? I mean, it's, it's interesting. There is always many people who are Jewish who come to faith in Christ, and it's just so precious and wonderful. I just love it. Well, if I haven't thrown enough arrows this morning, wait, I have more. There is also another person who finds this text impossible, the self-righteous Christian. What, did you think I was going to let all of us go? Come on. The self-righteous Christian also reads this text and finds reason to say, no, that's impossible. The Christian fundamentalist, by the way, I want to say it this way, is someone who is emotionally and mentally committed to a narrow view of God than the true God. So they're committed, this is the way God is, this is the way He must be, and anything that confronts that and contradicts that is wrong. So look at how this makes him self-righteous. You ready? Such a person has an impossible time with verse, starting in verse 28. Now, Gabriel comes into Mary, and in verse 28, he says to Mary, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, that right there, forget it. That is impossible. There's no way that an angel can say, favored one. Or how does it say it in your version? You know, kind of full of grace maybe or graced one? No, that can't be true because the self-righteous person can't imagine that, that God would favor anybody except the only way he could do that is because he looked through all the girls of Israel and he found the best, Mary. She was the best girl that there was in Israel, the best virgin. And so based on her merit... 
God chose her. That's a predominant teaching in Christendom. Very, very widespread. That he looked across the ladies, the girls of Israel, and found one who is the meekest, the best, or the most virtuous. In fact, there's even large swaths of Christendom that believe she was sinless. That's why, that's why Angel came to her, but he should not have said this. He should not have said favored one. He should have said virtuous one. But actually, the way that the text should be is that she has found favor or one who has been graced. The idea then is that God, of his own reasons, and not for anything within Mary, nothing within her whatsoever, chose her for his own purposes. So there was nothing within Mary. That's the way the text would actually read. So the self-righteous Christian looks at this, I'm not going to worship that kind of God. He's not very democratic. He picks and chooses. That's not okay with me. And of course, the self-righteous Christian says, that's why, by the way, because my life is blessed by God, and that's because I have earned it. I've been good. I've been good, and therefore I deserve and have earned the blessing of God. It's all here. What's for Christmas dinner? And the self-righteous Christian doesn't understand God's grace. You know, when God looks across all humanity, he sees none that are good None that are seek for God. None that are holy. None that are virtuous. Well, that's pretty hard. Grace is really a hard word for the self-righteous Christian because really, the self-righteous Christian, everything comes by merit. Grace is really the opposite of merit. God takes you in your unmerit and merits you with the favor of His Son. And that's how you become a Christian. So the idea then is that, well, Mary's such a good person, she must have earned merit from God because of her faith and piety. And even today, millions pray to her, begging her to bestow her earned merit upon them. And even Christian fundamentalists of every kind of denomination, type, stripe, speech pattern, everything else, won't trust in God's grace in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, but in what they have done and merited from God. Maybe they walked an aisle. Maybe they said a prayer. Maybe they gave some money. Maybe they asked Jesus in their heart, but they did something that merited salvation, and now they can be self-righteous the rest of their days, having not trusted in God's grace in Jesus Christ, but in their own deserts. And so they are the self-righteous Christian they don't understand the holiness of God who looks at all of us who are fallen in Adam and sees that there is no, not one who is good. And so as a result, frankly, it's impossible for self-righteous Christians to enter into heaven because heaven is only for those who have been graced by God, not for those who think they can earn their way in or believe they can earn their way in. And then lastly, one large arrow for everybody, okay, it's this, one last person who finds this text impossible, it's Americans. Did I hit you yet? Americans. But let's, let's say this. Let's just say people born since 1990. 
These kind of people can't accept this text in starting in verse 35. You ready? Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And they want to say, well, that's just crazy. If you're an American, you're not, you can't accept that. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and does all these wonderful things for you. That's just weird. God doesn't do holy stuff. God is like one of us. Oh, that reminds me of a song. Back in 1995, a song was released that got up to number four on the Billboard chart. Some of you I apologize because you're going to have this song in your head for the rest of the day, but it goes like this. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? And this song, the guy wrote it, by the way, to impress his girlfriend, and it worked because she married him, and now they have children. He wrote this song, and it just, boom, it just went right up the charts after it was produced because it just reaches us Americans where we live. We're so democratized. Even God is one of us, just a slob like one of us, trying to ride the bus at the end of the day, just trying to make his way home. You feel sorry for him, don't you? I mean, this is the God who, he lost his own son. He sent him to earth, and he was supposed to have a good life. And what happened? Oh, my goodness, he died on a cross. Wow. What a loser this God really is. Look, his own son. Oh, my, this is a tragic place. Pass the turkey. Well, not at all. This is indeed exactly what the plan is. And and you read words in this verse, in verse 35. Holy Spirit, the Most High, and for this reason, the Holy Spirit child will be called the Son of God. There's never been a child born who was holy, except for Jesus Christ. In fact, if the Greek were translated here into English, it would say the holy thing. To put him in a category so far exalted above humanity that you can't even use the word child. And the word child is is in all of our translations, because you can't have a Bible text that says the holy thing that is conceived in you. We just go, what? That's to dehumanize them. But Gabriel is speaking of something here so highly exalted and so sublime that it captures more than just imagination. It captures awe. And us Americans, we don't want awe. We want banality served up to us nonstop on a YouTube feed. That song includes this amazingly daft question. Would you want to see God's face if it meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and all the prophets? In other words, you really want heaven, but you don't want heaven with God and Jesus and the prophets. You want a heaven that you can design. Put your own name in front and say, Ted defined heaven. That's what you want, right? 
Not God's heaven. So the idea would be then let's just get rid of it all and let's create a faith and get people to come to church that we can teach them how important and how awesome they are so that each can divine design his own heaven just for him or her. And we'll all be happy and go away past the turkey. So what is it that's actually impossible for us Americans? Well, it's this, that I am so sinful that I need a Savior. No, I just need a hand up. I just need a good word in the morning. I just need some good entertainment. Give me a dose of religion. Give me a wafer. And the truth is that you and I are so sinful. We needed God to die for us in his humanity on a cross. That's how sinful we are. And nothing less, beloved. Nothing less. In a poll conducted several years ago by the Opinion Dynamics Corporation, 73% of Americans think they deserve to make Santa's nice list. 73%. Only 12% said they were naughty this year, and they all lived in Washington, D.C. That's weird. <laughs> See, all Americans believe we're good. We're good. Other polls that have been taken show that about 95% of all Americans believe they'll go to heaven when they die. We're good. We're all good. So this text is utterly impossible that there would be a holy child born and that he would be such a savior. So more than anything else this morning, we Americans need the impossible. Exactly what is spoken of in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. What's the impossible? Jesus was born without any inner propensity or any inner guilt for sin or for any original sin within him. Therefore, he lived his entire life without any guilt filtering through his thinking in all that he did, all that he said. Why, when you read about Jesus and you read his words, they are so strikingly different than all of the human words because he spoke them without any inner guilt filtering through the crevices of his mind, unlike you and me. He never, ever committed a single sin. He never lied a single lie. He never colored a single truth in order to shade it, make it more palatable. And then at the end of his life, Jesus took away sin, not for himself, but for filthy Americans, sinners, in addition to people from every tribe, tongue and language, tongue and language from every tribe and people on this earth. He died to do the impossible, save sinners from their sin. So that's why God's fingerprints are all over this passage, because it's holy. And even as an American, you won't find anything in here that is impure or unclean. This, beloved, is a text I commend to you for your belief. Would you like to pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we go to you now thanking you for the majestic things that you have done in the beloved Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came to do the impossible. Certainly to save my soul was an impossible task apart from your doing it, your work, your making it happen. And for others right now among us, Lord, there are women in here and men in here who need the impossible. Make them, Heavenly Father, not to trust in themselves, but to trust in you and in your sending of the Son 
alone for doing the impossible to save them. I ask in Jesus' power. Amen.